As we come to Matthew chapter 6, last week we studied the first part of chapter 6 about what you do in private for giving, what you do in private for praying, and what you do in private for fasting, you do before the Heavenly Father, and He'll honor that openly, and but not to do these things like a hypocrite. So our context last week were three actions that we see that disciples of Jesus Christ would do and how we're to approach them from our heart before the Lord and how that works. And so Jesus, again, remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching his disciples. There's a multitude. A lot of people are hearing, but not all people are disciples. And the people were amazed when he was done, but just because they're amazed doesn't mean they're transformed. Whereas I recently heard someone say, even just today, that what we're seeing in the Church of Jesus Christ in 2021 is not about converts or church congregants. It's about disciples. At this point on planet Earth, 2021, church is about disciples of Jesus Christ. And if you're a church, you want to be a church. And if you're not, you don't want to be, and that's okay. So this is about being disciples of Jesus Christ in 2021, where we join the body of Christ of times past. So with that in mind, as we come back to chapter 6, we're going to come to the Lord's Prayer. I purposely did not go into detail last week on this because I felt and believed I'd be coming back to revisit it. I do believe the Lord's Prayer is worth an entire night in God's Word as we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. So in verse 9 of chapter 6, we pick up this deliberate, absolute instruction of how to pray from Jesus Christ. In your red-letter Bible is, of course, the letters are in red for the words of Christ. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So in this manner, therefore, pray. Also in the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, this same prayer is listed minus that last phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So clearly, we see with Jesus in the harmony of the Gospels, as he went about teaching, we know that Jesus had consistent themes that he would teach over and over. If he's in a synagogue or teaching a multitude publicly or whatever it might be, he had certain things that he was hitting on or points that he would touch on. Even like if you listen to Pastor Chuck over the years at pastor's conferences, he would have certain things he'd pretty much say at every conference that were very important thematically for men and women in leadership of ministry to hear, and they were sort of these talking points he always had. So looking at Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, realize that Jesus definitely taught his disciples this is a template, a matter, and a specific prayer to be prayed in the relationship with the Heavenly Father, which the disciples have. So we're going to break this down tonight. There's a lot of different ways you could break down topically the Lord's Prayer, but we're going to look at three elements. Our Father in heaven, our life on earth, and the eternal coming kingdom. Our Father in heaven, our life on earth, and the, the eternal coming kingdom. The coming kingdom that's eternal, the kingdom of God. So first of all, our Father in heaven is verses 9 and 10, so we reread this again. Our Father... In heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. As we think of like prayer, and prayer is, of course, communication. It's communication with God. Prayer is our communicating upward with the Lord. His word is him communing 
communicating with us downward, if you will, the vertical relationship we have with God. God has spoken to us through his word. There in the book of Acts, after the day of Pentecost, we read the apostles gathered, the church gathered, and that the first thing they did was study the apostles' doctrine, which was the word of God. It's the Old Testament understood revealing Christ and opening up Christ to the people of the church age. So as they studied the word of God, the apostles' doctrine, they learned to understand the heart of God, the will of God, just like us going through Deuteronomy. Like they understood God's heart from his word. Let God be true and every man a liar. So to know that God is true, we got to hear. And we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the, the word of God, right? So it always starts, God is the initiator of the relationship. No one seeks after the Lord, no, not one. But the Lord saves us and he comes to us. And the gospels preach and the spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we open our hearts to Christ. For as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, not born of flesh or blood but, or the will of men, but born of God. We must be born again. So God reaches out to us through the gospel message. He speaks to us through his word. And as we've been seeing with Joshua, going through the book of Joshua, this law, you will not depart from it. You will not depart from God's law. You will meditate on it day and night. You will not depart to the left or to the right. So we know, because it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. So we're going to know his will. The more we know God's word from Genesis to Revelation, the more we're going to know the heart and the character of God, his holiness. The more we're going to understand the sinfulness and the depravity of humanity and God's heart for fallen humanity. And as we read God's word, as we go through his word, as Paul said, the whole counsel of God, our worldview, our thinking, our thought processes are going to go from a sinful, rebellious mind, what the Bible calls the New Testament, the natural mind, or even the carnal mind, to the mind of Christ, the mind of the Spirit. That's what's going to happen when we're born again. When we become disciples of Jesus Christ, our thinking changes, and we're illuminated to understand truth and the things of God. So, He's going to speak to us from his word. He's going to reveal his will from his word. And that's why thousands of times in the Old Testament it says, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me and said this. Thousands of times. We have this complete Bible, this canon of scriptures it's called, that is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, that pierces bone and marrow, soul and spirit, that thoroughly equips us for every good work. And we know that most of the Bible, 90% of the Bible, is reasonable to understand at face value. God says what he means and means what he says. And there's maybe another 10% that the context is very helpful or scripture interpreting scripture. That's called hermeneutics, where scripture, the study of science of study of scripture, scripture interprets scripture, just like tonight. Matthew 6, harmonized with Luke 11, tells us twice this prayer is in the New Testament with repetition and reinforcement. So as we think about praying to God and communicating with God, we understand he's already communicated with us. That's why it's so important that the early church was established on the apostles' doctrine, then prayer, then fellowship and the breaking of bread. Because if we establish on prayer without knowing the apostles' doctrine, we can, we'll just be like what we studied last week. We could have vain, repetitious prayers. We could have prayers that do not reflect God's will. We could be asking for things that are not consistent with God's will. Like it says in James, you, you ask not because you ask amiss. We're not asking for the right things. But as we take in God's word, as we read God's word, as we meditate on God's word, Psalm 1, and meditate upon it, as we delight ourselves in the Lord, his word 
shapes our thinking and moves our heart and our mind and our total being toward him, for all things are made by him and for him, and him all things consist, Jesus, to the mind of Christ, and the relationship matures. We take on the culture and the character of the Father and the kingdom. We become disciples. The servant, the master. We become disciples of Jesus Christ. We don't start out that way. And as we've been saying lately, quoting my sister, progress, not perfection. We don't start that way, but we're moving that way. So each year, at the end of the year, there should be more of Christ in our life and a greater maturity of the walk and less of the flesh, although it's never gone because there's treasures in earthen vessels. And we're being transformed from glory to glory. So with that in mind, when we say our Father in heaven, our Father is personal. It is a relationship. Timmy, Luke, Hannah and Leah can all walk through our front door and call me Father. And call me dad, pop, whatever. I can go visit my dad at, at Sunrise Facility. Say, pop, how you doing, pop? Well, Joe, doing pretty good. Because not much changes at Sunrise Facility day to day at 91, right? There's not much new happening except now they're in the dining hall again, right? But I call him pop. I have that relationship. The Holy Spirit led Paul in ex- expanding on this as being the children of God in Romans 8 when he says that, We who have the Holy Spirit who have been born again, we have the spirit of adoption. We've been adopted in God's family. And so we call God Abba, which in the context of the language then and the culture was like dad. It's intimate. We have that. Now, some of you had great relationships with your dad, have great relationships with your dad. Some, not so much. Some had great dads. Some had no dad. Some had abandonment from their dad, like Men do good things and men do evil things. So I don't know what it might be in your history, but in understanding the kingdom, we've been adopted into the kingdom and God in heaven. Revelation 4, that throne of glory, that's our dad. That's the throne room. We have access to the throne room. We know through Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father. He's our great high priest, Jesus, and we can come boldly in time of need. We have access. It's sort of like Pastor Chuck. It's interesting being on staff at Calvary Coast and for five years. Most people were very intimidated by Pastor Chuck. I'm sure some of you know that. Now, he didn't, he wasn't trying to be intimidating. He just, he's Pastor Chuck. He's a human being. It's the way he was. Chuck had his personality. The way he was, you could drive in a car for, with him for a long time. He wouldn't say a word. Like, Chuck's just Chuck. He's, he's the way he is. And people were very intimidated by him. The staff was very intimidated by Pastor Chuck, and he didn't really give any cost for that, but that's just the way it was, because he's like, wow, it's, it's Papa Chuck, right? A lot of people, like tens of thousands of people call Pastor Chuck Papa Chuck. Well, for me, I just, I look at it like, I fear God and I respect Chuck. And Chuck had an open-door policy. You could go to, as a staff member, you could just walk in to the, you, he made himself available to the staff. And of course, to his children, he was always available. You just, I mean, if I ever wanted to ask Pastor Chuck something, I could go to his office and walk through that door. Now, I didn't want to waste his time, right? You never, you always sense when you're wasting Pastor Chuck's time, like, all right, well, we'll catch you later. You know, like, there, not like he was in a hurry, but he's not there to waste time. Life is short, and he's been in the kingdom for a while now. But he was always there. He would even talk about how he's always there. If Cheryl wanted to come in, he'd stop anything and everything for Cheryl to come in. That's how dads are. When my children call me, if Leah calls me, 
I mean, I'm taking that call because she doesn't call that often. If Timmy calls me, we're taking that call. If Luke calls me, absolutely take that call because he does not call the small talk. Luke's calling for a reason. And if Hannah's calling, maybe she just wants to talk with her dad, right? You take those calls. And you that have adult children, you understand this. When, they, when your children call, it's like, unless you're really locked into something, and if you are, you're going to call them back as soon as possible because it's really special. You're their dad. Dads, you're their dad. And moms, you can relate to this in principle. But the dad, the idea is that the dad is accessible, that the dad's approachable, and there's a good relationship. And because God of the universe, who holds the stars in the palm of his hand and calls him by name, these imageries he gives us to understand his greatness, we're told that he's our father, dad. So we can think of your, our own dad or Pastor Chuck, what that was like, or our own experience, as I said, but God is God in heaven. And there was no relationship with the Father before we gave our life to the Son. Before we asked Christ into our life, we did not have a relationship with the Father. We were enemies of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. By this we know love. We were at war with God before we received Christ, and that's when we're reconciled and we come into the family. So we've been from enemies of God the Father because of our sin nature and we're under his wrath as children of wrath but when we give our life to Christ we now are in the relationship where we're not only sons and daughters of the king but we're joint heirs with Christ Romans 8 says and that all things are ours and when he comes in his glory we'll be in his glory it's not yet revealed but in his glory we'll be in the same glory so we're fully in the state we're fully in the trust as I say and we're joint heirs with Christ adopted in the family he's our heavenly father so the prayer starts with our Father. That is a distinction for the Church of Jesus Christ from every world religion and every philosophy of man. We're not appealing to Stalin to have favoritism within the Soviet Union or Hitler within, you know, Nazi Germany to have some kickbacks or something or, or the CCP in China. We're not appealing to men of power who have great power to get some benefit like the Wizard of Oz. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're coming to God of the universe who gave his son to redeem us to have access to him. And we're not just coming like some distant deity, if you will, where we bow down on rugs and repeat things in fear or climb mountains and chant things and rub things. We are coming like Cheryl Broderson into Pastor Chuck's office. That's how we're coming. Like Timmy calling me. Like your son calling you, dad, or your daughter. That's how we're coming, but even more so. Because of the imperfections of our earthly relationships with fathers and children, God's relationship with us is perfect. He's the perfect dad, the perfect father. He'll never let us down. He'll never say he'll be there for something and not be there. For, of course, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And the Father fulfills all the promises through the Son as yes and amen. There's no shadow of turning with the Father of lights. God is light, and him is no darkness at all. So when we come in prayer, whether it seems like casual prayer or early in the morning prayer, like Jesus arising early in the morning or Joshua arising early in the morning or David early in the morning while I seek you, this is a prayer pattern Jesus said that we can follow our Father who art in heaven. 
Our Father, it's the relationship. It's personal. We're growing in this relationship. It's not legal. It's not ritualistic. It is personal. It is intimate. And it is a relationship with God of the universe who made us for his own good pleasure in his image and in his glory. And we're coming through faith in the Son and we have access. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So there's no world religion or philosophy by which people can come and say, Our Father, Abba. Only the church. Isn't that wonderful? Let that sink in for a minute. All these songs we're singing, we're not a distant entity worshiping some divinity or artificial intelligence in self-deceit. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who has reconciled us to the Father who created us in his image and we have full access at all times to our Heavenly Father. So when you pray, pray in this manner, our Father. Just that right there puts everything that you're going to cast before his throne in perspective. Our Father is God on his throne, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the rainbow over the throne, and you say, our Father. It's like, what was bothering you? What had you upset? I mean, what what was big God, little problem? Little God, big problem? Our Father. Father. Eight times in this text I mentioned last week, the totality of these verses from last week, Jesus says, your father, 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 your father. Eight times. But here he says, our father. So on an individual basis, for a family and for the body of Christ, we come in here and say, our father. We can say it personally in our quiet place. We can say it with our spouses or our roommates. We can say it with our children. We can say your father, and then we can say our father. And this is the perspective. Our heavenly father is on the throne. People say, you know, God's still on the throne. Yes, he is. And as someone pointed out to me from the gospel of Mark, these things must happen. And things are happening that must happen. And our Father knows what's best. And if he says these things must happen, then they, they must happen. Sometimes I think, I, you know, I think we all think this. I think, I think I could run the universe a little bit better. If I was running the universe, I would definitely deal with this and that and absolutely that. But I'm not running the universe. And this, that, and that, God sees everything And he tells us these things must happen. And for his children who call him our father, they're working together for good to those who love him and are being conformed to the express image of his son for all eternity where we are kings and priests ruling and reigning with him. And that's why I'm not running the universe. And it's a good thing he is. God is in control. God is on the throne. And all things will be laid bare and open to him to whom with much given account. The Father of light, with whom there is no shadow of turning. Our Father, whose perfect love and perfect justice. So, in our prayer life, this gives us our perspective. 
He is in heaven. That's where he's at. He's not on earth. He's not in the White House. He's not in the Kremlin. He's not wherever the CCP meets in China. He's in heaven. He's in heaven, which exists before time, space, and matter and outside time, space, and matter. He's running the universe. He is I am that I am. He's the self-sufficient one. Exodus chapter 3. I am that I am. He's in heaven. He's our father. We're in the family. We're in the trust and the estate. Big brother Jesus, our savior, redeemer, has us in the family. And the glory is coming. We hallow his name because he's over everything. And we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So we know that God, it is the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom of God. It's not the kingdom of men. It's the kingdom of God. In Daniel's vision, in in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had the dream that disturbed him, where it was the statue and it was the the different golds and whatnot that represented the global, global kingdoms and dynasties, if you will, of that time. And in that dream, a mountain crushes those kingdoms. And we're told that the mountain was the kingdom of God. It's the coming kingdom. And the goal was Nebuchadnezzar, and then it was the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, and the revived Roman Empire, which is what Revelation describes as this confederation of ten kings, seven minus one, add one. you got to follow that math pretty tricky in Revelation. I just reread it the other day. But in the end, there'll be a collaboration of these ten kings, and they get reduced to seven, and then eight, and then there's just one, the Antichrist. And the mountain crushes that. And in Revelation, we're told when Jesus comes in his glory and faces the false, these beasts, the Antichrists, and the false prophet, the Antichrist, it's like all building up, and then all of a sudden he just shows up, and it's over. Like, you know, it's like this big hype, like MMA match or something, or UFC, and then and nothing even happens. It's like, it's over. Like, it's just, he destroys with the brightness of his coming. And then we're told after the thousand-year lull that Satan is cast into the lake of fire, and it's over. The mountain, the kingdom of God, is the triumphant kingdom. It's real. It's more real than time, space, and matter. It's transdimensional, and it's eternal. And that's our kingdom. So as we face realities of life, we need to see our Father in heaven and see the kingdom and recognize that what he's doing for his kingdom in and through us in time, space, and matter may not make sense to us, but we can trust in him so we can say like Jesus, not my will, but thy will be done, which is, of course, the wisest prayer. We can know his will on a lot of things, but there's a lot of things we don't know his will on. So we can simply pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So as long as we're alive and we're in time, space, and matter as the church and we're disciples of Christ, we are looking to have, from our prayer time with the Father, established through faith in Jesus Christ and confirmed by the Holy Spirit, we are looking to be still and to hear the mind of Christ and to pray over people and circumstances and for those in authority and those in leaders and we're to pray for these things and see these things the way the Lord sees them or we give them to him in that file of I don't get it but maybe someday I will or I never will but it's in his hands and we come what we don't know how can this be happening and we fall back on what we do know Christ is on the throne 
and we get the kingdom perspective, and we come from the kingdom perspective. We come from the presence of the Lord, and we can't, we don't want to leave a time of prayer unsettled and upset, but we want to leave a time of prayer having cast our cares before him that affect our personal life, our family, our nation, planet Earth, our timeline. And we can walk out that front door and say, your, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I'm going to be part of the solution as best I know how, because what I don't know, I fall back on what I do know. And that's how I'm going to operate in what I do know. And the rest is your universe, and you've got this covered. So it's so critical in our prayer life that Jesus is teaching us here in this manner. Our Father is in heaven. And he's holy. He's light. His kingdom is the eternal kingdom. It reigns over all kingdoms. In Revelation, when they say, who is worthy to open the scroll? It is Jesus, of course. Worthy is the Lamb. That's where we get that. It comes from Revelation 5. And in that culture, they would seal scrolls to establish the covenant. And when the seal, whoever could break the seal, owned that. And that seal that Revelation 5 describes, chapter 5, is the title deed of earth, which we forfeited through our father Adam in his sin and rebellion against God to Satan. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, and the wicked one, all in the New Testament. We forfeited the title deed of planet Earth. God made us in his image and gave us dominion over the entire universe. But Satan, deceiving Eve, and Adam rebelling against God, handed it over. And for the existence of the humanity in the pre-flood world and the post-flood world, everything is moving toward the redemption and the fullness of all things. The redemption of our glorified bodies. The redemption of the kingdom on earth. The new heaven and the new earth. It's all working toward that. And that's why in Revelation 5, it begins the final wrath of God on planet earth because Jesus is worthy. John wept, but then Jesus is worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And he's worthy. And he redeemed planet earth. He redeemed our souls. He redeemed us from the power of Satan and the power of the grave. And he's redeemed this planet. And he's worthy to open it. So he's got this. All of it. From the hairs on our head, which he knows, to the thoughts of our hearts, which David said, search me and reveal them to me so I can make sure they're right with you. His will is going to be done on earth as in heaven. When the end game is done on planet earth, his will will be perfectly established. At the end of this dispensation, as we see it right now and live in it, it'll be perfectly established, and then the new heaven and new earth will be perfectly established, and will be perfectly established as his disciples in the coming kingdom in a glory that's indescribable and can't even be uttered, according to Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians. So we have to come and get the perspective and have the right perspective for our personal life, for our loved ones, for our community, and for human race. And once we have that, then the rest just like dominoes just fall into place. Because the second element is our life on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, doesn't that seem insignificant after the first point? But it's not, because we're hungry. The devil said, skin for skin, all that a man has will give to save his life, right? We're, we're desperate people. We're told in the last days, based upon the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that a day's wage for a loaf of bread. 
which is how a lot of people live, actually, a day's wage for a loaf of bread. As the great prosperity of the American dream is unraveling around us, the greatest nation in the history of humanity with the greatest prosperity is unraveling at the same time. And it is hard to watch. It is. But, you know, the Bible tells us the planet's moving toward a day's wage for a loaf of bread. And that one person with all the power of Satan is going to control how you get that bread. And obviously what's going on right now around us is moving toward that. All these things are moving toward a total control of the individual. Being able to monitor them, police them, follow them, track them, and control them for a loaf of bread. And this is what Jesus told us in the revelation of Jesus Christ what happened. The one ruler with a false piece on the white horse, followed by the horse with the scale. The planet is moving toward all the billions of people on this planet controlled by one government entity with all the power of Satan behind them to make you capitulate your self-determination, your personal freedoms for a loaf of bread. So body of Christ, don't forget that as you watch things continue to go in the direction they're going around you. Because ultimately Satan is seeking full control and he'll have full control through one man. He's a man with all the power of Satan controlling everyone's ability to buy and sell and trade and move all freedoms. And there's a way he's going to do that and control that. And whatever's going on around us, it's moving toward that. For a loaf of bread. So we go back to that thought. We don't live to eat. We don't live for our flesh. We eat to live. We feed the flesh so we can fulfill the spirit. That's what we want to do. Ben Franklin, I always quoted Elizabeth Elliot for that because Elizabeth Elliot was the first person I ever read who said that. Actually, it was Ben Franklin who said it before her. We don't eat, we don't live to eat, driven by fleshly desires. We, we eat to live, to do what we need to do. So yeah, the Lord knows we have the needs for food. We're designed to need food. He designed us that way. He gave us a garden, the perfect vegan garden of all time, the garden. And we're told actually in Genesis chapter 2 before sin that when Adam and Eve looked at the plants, they had a, a natural desire. It implies like a natural lust, like sexual lust that God gives us naturally for plants. Isn't that interesting? No wonder people that are fallen are called tree huggers sometimes. And I love my plants too. And what do old people do when they're retired? They have plants. They plant them, they trip them, they, they clip them, and they trim them. Right? That's what old people do. They get into their gardens because what was Adam? A gardener. What was Eve? The gardener's wife. What did they do before they fell? They tilled the ground. What was his son Cain? A gardener. Right? We're designed to eat and to need eat. We're designed for air. Maslow's drives, right? Air, water, food, bowels, sex drive. Those are the five main drives. And as your body's shutting down, they shut down in reverse order. Sex drive, bowels, food, water, air. That's when you know someone's dying, right? When they quit eating and then they don't want to drink anymore and it's just like ice, ice cubes, right? If you've ever seen it, I have. That's the way it goes. So you have this and then it goes back this way. And God designed us that way. 
So he knows we need these things, and he knows these desires are natural desires he's given us. What do they say? Uh, You can go three weeks without food, three days without water, and three minutes without air. God made us that way in his universe. So he knows our drives, and he knows what we need. So we get the kingdom, our Father in heaven, we get the perspective, his kingdom, his hallowedness, his character, his kingdom's coming. Our whole purpose is to be alive. We don't live to eat. We eat to live. And yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So we, we get the perspective. And then like, and by the way, I've got life this day and I need to eat. My wife needs to eat. My kids need to eat. The grandkids need to eat. And I was like, yeah, I, I know that. I got that. I got that. I got that. I got you on this one. We're going to be studying next week when he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. That's what the non-believers worry about. God's going to provide for us. And if, we, if he restrains something of our natural desires for a reason, for a season, it is for a reason. So if we're going through famished things, it's for a reason. And, you know, we talked about this in Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph all faced famines. And famines reveal a lot about us, what we do with the famine. Do we panic and flee to Egypt? Or do we sow bountifully in the land like Isaac? Do we bewail the day we were born like Jacob? Or do we have a plan like Joseph? Famines reveal a lot about us. And and God allows famines. And pretty much most generations have at least one. Maybe we're we're in some kind of a famine right now because it's pretty hard to go buy furniture or appliances right now. And if you're a plumber, those parts are really, really, really hard to find right now. So it's a famine of supplies to build homes, right? Like everyone's moving to Texas, buying these houses. They can't build the houses because there's no wood, there's no bricks, there's no windows. So we're already in a famine of some sort. But who knows what kind of famine we'll be in. But know this, God knows what we need. And we're told in Timothy, with food and clothing, we'll be content. So if he reduces us to what really matters, that's what he does. As I mentioned in reading the World War I book, the Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman, Reading about the Germans going into Belgium and just destroying Belgium in six weeks as they marched toward Paris, I just keep thinking, like, these people lost millions of people. They lost their homes, their farms they had for centuries. The family photos, that beautiful library, I think it was in Antwerp, was completely bombed. Like, it had books from, like, from the last thousand years destroyed by the Huns, you know, the Germans, when they did it. They lost everything. Like that. The estate, everything, their family, the generational wealth that was built, it was gone like that. Anything about the Romanovs and the Tsars and 300 plus years of the Romanovs. And so Nick, Nicholas and Alexander with their beautiful daughters and their son Alexei as, as they were caught by the Bolsheviks and then hauled off to Siberia, that as they lost everything, all that wealth of centuries of the Romanovs, the Tsars, and they lost it all. And then they were stripped of it over the last year, stripped and stripped of it, their palace and their this and that. And then in the, three months before they all died, they had the last of the, the monarchal jewels in their clothes and hidden and sewn in secret spots. And off they were in Siberia. And by the end, when they died, they had nothing left when the Bolsheviks gunned them down and buried them in their grave. But we're told by eyewitnesses they pressed into their faith in Jesus Christ, of course, being Russian Orthodox, and they praised Jesus as they were losing everything. So centuries of wealth, the largest nation in the world, one of the richest nations in the world, and of all the monarchs and aristocrats, they were probably the greatest, the Romanovs. 
And as they lost everything and were humiliated by the communists, the Bolsheviks, God allowed them to lose everything before they stepped into eternity. And by the eyewitness accounts of the household servants who would talk to them through the, through the windows or across the fence and risk their lives for them, because, of course, so many people were executed in relationship to the Romanovs. By all testimony, all they were doing was singing praise songs in Russian and praising Jesus from the scriptures. See, there's simplicity when you are down to a loaf of bread, isn't there? A loaf of bread, Jesus says here. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not the best food. It's not first choice of food. It's the most basic substance of every society in human history. They're grain. The Aztecs in the maize, the American Indians in the maize, bread, bread, that basic sustenance. We ask for so many things that we think are essential. Give us this day our daily bread encompasses in this prayer that Jesus gives us to the disciple. Give us this day our daily bread encompasses everything we need to ask for that we really need. Everything that's earthly and temporal is in this one phrase. Give us this day our daily bread. That includes your car, your house, your clothing, everything. Your new laptop, whatever. It's everything. Everything that we think is important is reduced to a loaf of bread, which is the end game in Revelation. Give us this day our daily bread. And the rest, if you have it, good for you. If you lose it, maybe good for you too. To sharpen the focus. I'm in no hurry to lose anything that I've worked hard to build for 60 years, that my parents worked hard to build, that my grandparents worked hard to build. But you know what? The Romanovs lost it in a year. Most of Europe lost it the first time in six weeks. And then when it was all restored, it was lost again 20 years later. It's such a brief existence. What it really comes down to for the disciple is not kingdoms and legacies of things left behind. It's lives lost in service to the king. We eat to live. We don't live to eat. And the loaf of bread is what we need to serve the Lord this day. So the kingdom is really, the reality of the kingdom is we still live in time, space, and matter. And with these physical bodies, we require physical needs. And we cast our cares upon the Lord who cares for us. And we look to him ultimately to meet our needs. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So in time, space, and matter, after the physical need, what's more important than forgiving the, being forgiven for our sins and forgiving others for how they've sinned against us? We sin before the Lord, against the Lord, and people sin against us. Our sins affect other people adversely, although it's before the Lord, and people's, other people's sins affect us adversely. So we need to seek forgiveness for our sins before God, and we need to forgive others who sin against us. Of course, the bonus text we didn't read tonight is, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's not in Luke's gospel, but that's here. That's a double emphasis on the need for forgiveness. So progress, not perfection. So we need the bread, and it's progress, not perfection. But progress is, is recognizing sin and not being arrogant and being broken and humble by sin, like David in Psalm 51, and then 
in our own brokenness from sin, finding the humility and brokenness to forgive others for their sins against us. Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. But even so, when we're talking about time, space, and matter, once you get past the bread and everything's in the bread, the appliances you can't get is in the bread. Your new refrigerator, your new furniture, it's not there. It's in the bread. It's all there. And once you get past the bread, what do you have? Your heart. Your heart right before God. Your heart right before God. And your heart right toward other people before God as well. So even in time, space, and matter, it's the spiritual that's emphasized in this prayer. And think of the first century church as the Jews came against them and drove them from their residencies and all that they owned and drove them into poverty in that first generation of the church recorded for us in the book of Acts. And then what Caesar Nero did to them and the catacombs. Just today, Chris Gonzalez, who led us in worship, was telling us about how he went to Italy and saw the catacombs where the Christians worshiped in the first century. They're still there. That big Roman Colosseum's there too, and it's empty. And his legacy is killing people and crude, vulgar entertainment of fallen men. The catacombs' legacy, it's dying for people. And the legacy is the kingdom. And we're here right now. See those catacombs? They testify of revelation. How long, O Lord, how long before you have been the bloods of your martyrs? The catacombs speak of that. That Roman Colosseum, that's just the kingdoms of men. Just another empty stadium. What really matters is being forgiven in time, space, and matter, and as being forgiven in brokenness, forgiving others. That's progress. Not perfection, but that's progress. And then the reality of being delivered from temptation. We, we face temptation. We're in the battle. As the Afghan war has come to an end with the total defeat and rout of the U.S. presence, it's hard to watch. And make no mistake, it's total defeat. We all know that. It's hard to watch, 20 years like that. I've wept many times. How many of you wept this week? Did anyone weep this week over what's going on in Afghanistan? Well, most of you. It's so hard to watch. All I can think of is the fall of Saigon as a teenager, the Iranian hostage crisis, which is horrible. It's just, I think back to memorials of people who died in the Afghan war, Calvary Costa Mesa. And it's just, I'm sickened beyond measure. I'm just sickened. And the phrase has come back to my mind of endless wars, right? That's the phrase we don't want to hear, right? Endless wars. But there are endless wars. The war against evil and tyranny and godless evil men destroying innocent people is an endless war. It is a spiritual war. It is a spiritual battle. And we as the church are in an endless war. And this is why Paul the Apostle says at the end of his life, I fought the good fight because there is a fight. The kingdoms have been in conflict since the fall of the garden and even before the fall in the garden when Satan was cast out. We read in Revelation that that dragon of old, Satan, he fought against Michael the archangel and he accuses the saints. He's the accuser of the brethren. It is an endless war. And whether we like the war or not, in the spiritual realm, the eternal realm, Satan is attacking us perpetually. And his organized Principalities and powers of Ephesians 6 are attacking you and me. They're attacking our homes. They know our address. They know our marriages. They know our children, our grandchildren. And we can't, we can't get around this. Like if you live in Belgium and the Germans say they're going to invade in the summer of 1914, there's not much you can do. 
You can't wish that away like, oh, no, I'm thinking happy thoughts. Happy thoughts today in the field on, on the Rhine or whatever. You know, you just can't. I mean, war is war. And evil is evil. And when Jesus says, when you pray, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's war. That's endless war. That's endless war on our mind, our hearts, and all that we love and hold dear to ourselves. It's a war on our soul, the purity of our hearts, and the purity of our minds. It's a war on our marriage. It's a war on our children. It's a war on our society and all that's good. All that God has decreed that is good in human society, it's a war on that. It's a war against law and order. It's a war against those who maintain law and order. It's a war against truth. It's a war against transparency in the marketplace of comparative thoughts. All of that is evil. Because the devil wants only his thought, only his plan, and only his slander, and he's the father of lies. And this is the war we're up against. We see it in the realm of men, but it's really from the realm of the spirit. And this war was happening before you were conceived in your mother's womb. And the moment you gave your life to Christ, you went from being a prisoner, a captive, to Satan. Having been taken captive to do his will. But when we're given, give our lives to Christ, we're now in the war. And there's no way around it. You know, the standing Minutemen, the Massachusetts Minutemen... By the early 1770s, they began to form those militias. They knew war was coming. And they had farms in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey. The colonies began to organize these standing militias because they knew war was coming. And I never knew this, but in reading a recent book, they're talking about like how as the British came to fight the war against the rebels of the Continental Congress and the Continental Army, one thing they didn't understand because they fought those European wars they fought organized wars on big battlefields in Europe a certain way. But they underestimated about the American citizen militia, the Minutemen and the others, is they've been fighting war since the day they arrived in the colonies. It was endless wars when you came to the colonies. There were Indian, these Indian wars that never ended, and they were barbaric, brutal, guerrilla wars. In other words, if you wanted freedom in America from the day they arrived in Plymouth Rock or Jamestown, they had to fight for it. They had to fight for it. There's no way around it. We fight on our knees with prayer. We advance the kingdom with prayer. We fight the good fight. We do the best we can. And we step into eternity. Our weapons are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the tearing down of strongholds. And we don't know what different generations face in their different circumstances. I don't fault a Belgian who stands there and with a rifle in a window shoots at the Huns as they're going by their city destroying it. Or the, the Belgian who puts his stuff on a cart and they head for Paris. I don't fault either one of them. I wasn't there. I didn't live there. And neither were you. And you, you didn't have to make those choices. Don't judge history because we weren't there. We don't know what they faced and what it was like. We can only live in our moment and do the best we can as unto the Lord. And let God be true and every man a liar and have a higher conscience before God than men. And not let the fear of man be a sneer, but fear of God. But there's no way around this spiritual battle we're in. We'd be in it even if it wasn't like this outside these doors, but we're in it now, and we're the church. And after all we've been through in a year and a half, there's no reset. This is what the church looks like around the world. Way less people. Mega churches much more decreased in numbers. 
God's been sifting. He's been shaking with solid remains. We're here. We're solid. We remain. And we need to continue to pray, take thoughts captive, fight the good fight, stand for truth, having done all, stand. And whatever we purpose we need to do, to do what's right before the Lord in our conscience, consistent with his word, and our self-determination God gives us, then in Jesus' name, do it. And do it in such a way that it glorifies your Father in heaven. Reflect Christ in that. As Thomas Paine said during the winter and the siege of New York, these are the times that try men's souls. And these are the times we live in. And our souls are being tried. But ultimately, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's it. The church is the kingdom of God on earth. We have the power of heaven within us. And his is the glory. That is the only true glory. And I close with this thought. When I read Revelation the other day, in its entirety on one day, the thing that struck me most and stood out to me most was chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible. Three times in chapter 22, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. His last word to his church in the last chapter of the Bible. And, you know, I thought, well, Lord, you didn't come that quickly. It's been 2,000 years. And all I was like, you think was, he's not on my timeline, and he's outside of our dimension. He's like Aslan. He goes to Narnia, he comes out of Narnia, he comes back to Narnia, it's been thousands of years in Narnia. It's, his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our ways. What he tells us is, behold, I'm coming quickly. Even so, Maranatha. That's not fatalistic. That's optimistic. Because we need faith and optimism in a difficult time that tries men's souls. And Jesus Christ will always be our hope in our personal life and its challenges, in the church life and its challenges, in America and its challenges, and for the human race and its challenges. Jesus Christ will always be the hope that's an anchor to the soul that is the only true hope. And he tells us tonight, behold, I am coming quickly. Three times, Revelation chapter 22. So to harmonize with other scriptures, watch, be ready. Who's that faithful servant? When his master comes, that's who we want to be. In the moment, it's not a reset. It's who we are right now, planet Earth. We're going forward from right here in obedience to the Lord. God be with us all. As a church family, in the great country of the United States of America, on planet Earth with humanity, in such an uncertain future, May Christ continue to be our certainty and our hope and the ultimate triumph of time, space, and matter. Behold, I am coming quickly.